Hello everyone and welcome to episode 2 in our Unorthodoxy series on a murdered god and an exiled queen. For details on the setup, I obviously recommend that you go back to episode 1 in this series, but the gist is this. God is apparently dead, as Nietzsche has informed us, and the queen of the sciences, namely theology, has gone into exile. And that means... When and where we are right now, we get all kinds of theological messages and very mixed messages from the Queen as she attempts to rule from a distance. It's obviously a metaphor, but I think it is a helpful one for framing the kind of world that we live in, at least from a theological perspective. The result of this Queen ruling from a distance thing is that even if there's a chance that God isn't dead after all, it is difficult, often impossible, to maintain faith in him. In this and in the episodes that follow, I want to look at a few of the fragments that we have from this mysterious case, and I want to give you some sense of what the fragments indicate, namely a general sense of the whole, of the totality, of that which sums everything up. So let's get cracking, shall we? One of Chesterton's more powerful observations, which applies as much now as it did when he first penned it over a hundred years ago, is that the modern world is not exactly always evil. Certainly not as evil as we might think it is. In a way, he says, it is far too good. It is full of wild and wasted virtues. Chesterton goes on to say that one of the results of the Western flight from Christianity, or perhaps what we might call the collapse of Christianity, is not only that vices are let loose, but that virtues are also unleashed on the world. And while vices cause terrible damage, virtues can cause even more terrible damage when left to wander isolated from each other. For mercy to remain truly merciful, for instance, it cannot be divorced from justice. And for truth to remain truthful, it needs to be allied to compassion. Just as compassion, to be genuinely compassionate, needs truthfulness. Without truth, compassion easily becomes a form of torture. Without compassion, truth becomes a kind of war machine. So this, then, is the first element of this tricky case to figure out. The pervasiveness of fragments and fragmentation. There is this old French fairy tale called Rosanella, which represents this fragmentation in the form of a prince who has every virtue that a prince could possibly want, except for one, constancy. He is smart and he is talented, but he is also hopelessly promiscuous. He falls in love with every princess he meets, and if he happens to be in the company of many princesses, he then falls in love with all of them simultaneously. And so he finds himself in this very awkward position at one point of wanting to speak at length with a princess with the unusual name of Thoughtful, because she happens to be very thoughtful, while staring into the face of a princess called Beautiful, who is particularly beautiful, and laughing at the stories of a princess called Joy, who is uniquely high-spirited. If only there were one princess who possessed all those virtues in one unified form. Well, that's how the fairy tale ends. The prince's wandering eye is cured when all of these apparently different princesses turn out to be one princess in multiple bodies. How that happened is fairy magic. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't necessarily have this kind of fairy magic available to us. Unity seems to us to be an idea, but not really a reality. 
So to begin our explanation of why we have been involved in a kind of theological train wreck, it'll help to get some sense of what is happening now. We all fairly naturally and instinctively have a sense about what is wrong. But this is fairly strange, given that it's very easy to be unsure about what is right. The present age, for our purposes, is the scene of this crime that we're investigating, and as I'll explain as we go along, underlying this crime scene is, as Chesterton suggests, not so much a loss of reality, but an emphasis on one or two or a few aspects of reality, a kind of disproportionate representation of what is real. Things often go wrong, as in the case of virtues wandering around separately, not from a lack of goodness, but from stressing only one dimension of the good. This, as I see it, is one reason for our various arguments about what is right. Not that there is no such thing as what is right, but because we tend to focus only on one aspect of what is right, or a limited aspect of what is right. And when we focus on that aspect of what is right, it becomes difficult to see anything else as being right, even if it is. Political debate often goes haywire for this very reason. For instance, people who see the world in terms of a dialectic of oppressor and oppressed struggle to hear people who are talking about the world in terms of freedom and unfreedom, or people who are talking about the world in terms of civilization and barbarism. If you want to have a look at that idea, you can check out Arnold Kling's book, The Three Languages of Politics, especially if you're in America, I think it might help you. The gist of it is, Everyone is talking about what is valuable from their perspective, and sometimes this makes it really difficult to conceive of values that their own perspective doesn't allow. It might be helpful then to make a distinction between the absolute and the relative. Other terms can be used to describe this distinction, of course, being and becoming, for example, or the universal and the particular, or the substantial and the accidental, or the necessary and the contingent, the absolute is, by definition, that which exists without qualification. It is independent, it is beyond comparatives, it's related in meaning only to itself rather than to other things. The relative is the opposite of this. It refers to that which exists with qualification. It functions interdependently, it is entrenched in the comparative, and it has its being only in relation to other things. The absolute is strong, immovable, dependable. The relative, by comparison, is weak, changing, and ultimately untrustworthy. In the theological tradition, there is only one absolute, and that is God. God is the only immovable, immutable subject. God alone is safe from the world of relativity. Everything that is not God is, by contrast, not. God is goodness and love itself, which means that moral being and acting are only good and loving relative to God's goodness and love. This idea may be alarming to those of you who might want to cling too rigidly to the idea of moral absoluteness as something found in moral principles, but those people should notice that their clinging may have more to do with the fact that the queen is in exile than with the tradition uh, that Christianity has given us. When someone referred to Jesus as good teacher, his response was to say, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus himself, living in the world of the relative, attributes absoluteness to God alone. 
I mention this without at all wanting to open a theological can of worms. All I want to do is point out something very simple and, in my view, uncontroversial, which is that traditionally God has been seen as absolute, whereas everything else isn't absolute. One of the stranger things about the time that we live in is its absolute obsession with the relative and its insistence on relativizing the absolute. There are complex reasons for this obsession, and we will get to some of them, but it is worth simply paying attention to the fact and its consequences. One of the clearer dimensions of Nietzsche's proclamation of the death of God is the fact that the world is rendered as a world of becoming. The universe is named as the arena of change and nothing besides, and this change gets any number of labels, evolution, progress, entropy, weather, mood, restructuring the company, moral relativism, fashion, and so on. You could find your own label. It's everywhere. There is an obvious dimension to this that is quite theologically sound to notice, namely that change is an inevitable part of the world of the contingent and the relative. Everything that is not God is meant to be subject to change, but the West seems to be committed to change without any reference to even the possibility, or what might be thought of as the logical necessity, of the unchanging and the unchangeable. So what is the result of assuming that there is no absolute? Well, for one thing, it becomes difficult to anchor anything. So for example, Nietzsche explains truth as follows. It is a mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, and anthropomorphisms. In short, a sum of human relations which have been enhanced, transposed, and embellished poetically and rhetorically, and which after long use seem firm, canonical, and obligatory to people. Truths are illusions about which one has forgotten that this is what they are, metaphors which are worn out and without sensuous power, coins which have lost their pictures and now matter only as metal, no longer as coins. This is a fairly cynical stance on truth by Nietzsche, but it's linked to his perspectivist stance on language. But it fits perfectly with his view that if you delete God from the cultural and historical program, you end up with little more than a world of reference, which only refer to other reference. Signs become arbitrary, and everything else actually becomes arbitrary. The world becomes a world of equations that simply do not and cannot equate. If there is only becoming, then, as Nietzsche suggests, then we must posit being. Being, in other words, is merely that sense or construct rather than the concrete reality of the permanent against which all change is happening. Being is something we manufacture rather than find. It is something we impose as the illusion of solidity against the backdrop of undulations and fluctuations. In a world that is really just noise, the signal needs to be created, since there is no true or ultimate signal that would render the noise intelligible. In this Nietzschean universe, what we have then is different relativities. We don't really measure the relative against the absolute or becoming against being. Rather, we measure the relative against the background of other things that are also relative. Basically, we can measure the speed of a car or the speed of light only because the given background of entropy is changing too slowly to be immediately perceptible to us. The ruler or the measuring tape is changing, so to speak, but not quickly enough for us to tell, so we use it because it's the best thing we have. 
the trajectory of the contemporary world is to revert back to a kind of Heracletian principle, which is you can't step into the same river twice. This is exaggerated in our world, though, since the self fluctuates as much as the river does, so it's not even really possible to step into the same river once. It may be worth asking someone like Nietzsche, what would be the nature of the so-called being that would be posited against this sonography of change? You could say that the, this being would merely be repetition. Being becomes, in such a world, less a solid and permanent thing than a habit or a ritual that is endlessly repeated. It's endlessly reenacted, endlessly reaffirmed, to the point that we forget that it is merely one element in a cosmos of pure becoming. Nietzsche's point about positing being is deeply psychological, though, and to some extent I think Nietzsche's brilliance goes haywire because his insights into psychology get to see more light than reason does in his work. Even if we come to accept that our reality is built upon a non-foundation of pure contingency and relativity, we desire a sense of the stable. Nietzsche seems to intimate that this desire would be misguided and that true creativity will happen when we come to terms with the chaos within us. He suggests this, however, on the assumption that chaos is all there really is, while order is merely chaos passing at a much slower rate. My question to Nietzsche would be, why do we feel this intense need to find stability in change if stability is not ultimately real? It seems to me that the need for the permanent, the need that is for being and not just becoming, is too deep-seated to be merely a fictional construct. In general, we cannot want what we do not know exists. So why then do we want the unchanging? What interests me is that there are hidden laws, regulatory mindsets, a bit like Lacan's construct, the big other, regarding belief in this world, in which the relative is the only absolute. Not only is it difficult to imagine any sort of absolute, it's become somewhat frowned upon to imagine that there is an absolute. Why would you pursue the transcendent if it has become so unfashionable and when doing so would basically render you a persona non grata at any given fashion parade of ideas? Even Theologies of open theism and process theology embrace the idea that God is a God of becoming and change. According to these, God learns and grows just as we do, and God is as ontologically vulnerable as we are. He is a God with parts, a God in pieces or perhaps torn to pieces. Now, whether such theologies are true or not, or better than the classical theist stance, is not yet up for questioning. I'm going to get to that later. I'm just noting that the emphasis on change and becoming, even in the divine, is much more plausible nowadays in a world that has come to accept change apart from the possibility of some transcendent permanence. What is certain is this. The world that appears to us really is a world of change, and we ourselves are changing in it. This is not all that controversial in theological terms, again, since even the earliest conceivable visions of the created order presumed that it was relative precisely because it was created, but in the world we live in now, in which the signal-to-noise ratio has become completely thrown out of whack by the sheer volume of noise, it's become even easier to believe that becoming holds more sway than being. 
And that, to misuse Carl Sagan's phrasing, the relative is all that is or was or ever will be. One of the fundamental reasons for an increased faith in the relative over and against the absolute is technological. Media theorist Marshall McLuhan, whose work I highly recommend, it's weird but wonderful, he offered a way for us to understand that the world we see changes the way we see the world we see. We are not, however, merely passive in the face of the world, as Heidegger's work suggests, but we are still nevertheless highly affected. It's not just that I engage with media as extensions of my embodied self, but that my entire perceptual framework is adjusted and altered by what I engage with. In a world of rapid technological advancement, in which traveling up a skyscraper is more by elevators than by stairs, in which traveling to the next destination is more by cars and aeroplanes than by walking, and in which messages are not by you know, snail mail, post, but by an instant messaging and Instagram and Insta-everything that gets shoved into some digital archive almost as quickly as it appears on your screen. In this world, becoming has simply become more evident. Being has become less so. Becoming has become normalized, while being has been anomalized. If your life is lived at a furious pace, contingents will start to shape and shift your consciousness into accepting that it, contingents itself, is the measure of all things. If your world exists predominantly as an overwhelming vortex of data and information, reality itself will be more apparently fragmented. Wisdom will be reduced to knowledge, knowledge will be reduced to information, and information will be reduced to data. Try to build a meaningful existence out of data and distractions, and you will discover, if you are paying attention, that it won't work. In a world that moved slower, according to rhythms more natural and seasonal without the kind of existential jet lag that most of us now deal with, permanence would just have been more plausible. And the infinitely permanent, namely God, would have been more conceivable, even if God remained inconceivable. When you slow down, you you can actually start to believe that there is the possibility of an ever-moving repose, an infinite self-giving that is, in its infinity, a movement that stands completely still. What is less obvious, however, is the fact that there are theological currents that have made the Enlightenment mindset possible and have made this technological innovation possible. It would be nice to believe that theology went into hiding because a bunch of secularists and modernists came along and ruined everything, but in my philosophical detective work, it's become clear to me that some of the worst culprits have been theologians themselves. They have been devout, dedicated, brilliant, incisive, innovative, but wrong. (laughs) So when Nietzsche pins the crime of God's murder on all of us, we need to be a little bit more specific. When it comes to perpetuating grounds for disbelief, theologians are definitely part of it. I guess that's a bit of a bombshell to end this episode with, but I hope it keeps you intrigued. We will start to look at some of the theological crimes that have led to this case of the murdered God and the Queen in exile as we go along. In the next episode, I'll be talking about one of the subtler shifts in theological thinking that took place in the medieval period that made it easier to believe 
that God is more like Santa Claus than like the transcendent source of being itself. And there will be several implications of that shift that we will also explore. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. As you journey on, my hope is that you will have a deep and abiding sense of the signal in the midst of the noise. Cheers.